Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to SCOTUS 101. Zach, how you doing? I'm doing okay, GC. It's the second to last week of the term, and it's been a busy one. It certainly has. I will start us off with opinions. Some of these are on the technical side, and in the interest of time, we're going to discuss those ones only briefly. But first up was the biggest opinion of the week, United States versus Texas. Several states sued the Biden administration over its policy of not enforcing various provisions of the immigration laws. Justice Kavanaugh wrote for a majority, including Chief Justice Roberts, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Jackson, holding that the states lacked standing to sue. In short, the majority held that the states were not harmed in any way which is judicially cognizable. Justice Gorsuch, joined by Thomas and Barrett, concurred in the judgment only to say that the problem was not a lack of injury, but rather a lack of redressability. The states, in their view, certainly suffered harm, especially under existing precedents. But the courts lacked the power under the immigration laws to force the government to enforce those laws. Justice Barrett, joined by Justice Gorsuch, concurred in the judgment to essentially making that same argument. And Justice Alito alone dissented, recognizing the substantial harm to border states and arguing that the majority ignored relevant precedents, which actually cut in the state's favor. Now, let me editorialize for a moment here. You'll notice that in both the concurrence and the dissents, uh, they accused the majority of ignoring existing precedents, and they're right. So here, the border states said, essentially, President Biden's non-enforcement of the immigration laws has harmed us. The Supreme Court said, no, it doesn't. You can't sue. But several years ago in Massachusetts versus the EPA, several states said President Bush's non-enforcement of certain environmental regulations hurts us. And the court said, yes, it does. You can sue. And a couple of years ago, several states said that President Trump's attempt to put a citizenship question on the census might hurt us. And the court said, yes, it might. You can sue. Now, you would think that the majority would consider those precedents and try to distinguish them. There might be good reasons why they don't apply. But Kavanaugh ignored those cases entirely. That is incredibly frustrating to me as a reader of Supreme Court opinions. If you were a lawyer and you did that in court, you would be sanctioned. If you were an academic and you ignored relevant opinions or articles in your work, it could ruin your career. But Kavanaugh apparently sees no problem just ignoring precedents he doesn't like. Well, that's the benefit of life tenure, GC. I guess, but boy, does it just grind my gears. Well, next up, we have Pugin versus Garland. This was a 6-3 to three decision, again, by Justice Kavanaugh, where Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Thomas, Alito, Barrett, and Jackson join him in holding that an offense may relate to obstruction of justice for the purpose of deporting felons from the United States even if there is not a pending investigation or a pending proceeding. In this case, a Mexican citizen was convicted of dissuading a witness from reporting a crime, and a Maritanian citizen was convicted of being an accessory to a felony after the fact. They were both declared to be deportable because their crimes related to obstruction of justice. But both of these individuals argued that this was wrong because there was no ongoing investigation. In the first case, it hadn't started yet. 
yet, and in the second, the investigation was over. The Supreme Court, though, disagreed, saying that the history and practice in federal and state obstruction laws does not require a pending investigation. Next up was Arizona versus the Navajo Nation. This was a 5-4 to four decision by Justice Kavanaugh, joined by Roberts, Thomas, Alito, and Barrett, holding that an 1868 peace treaty with the Navajo tribe, which created the Bosque Redondo Reservation, did not require the federal government in perpetuity to take affirmative steps to provide the tribe with water. What the treaty did, the court held, was give the tribe the right to use water and to make the same sort of claims over shared sources of water that states can make. Justice Thomas concurred to underscore that the trust relationship that exists between the federal government and the Indian tribes does not necessarily impose on the federal government the same sort of duties that a private trustee must satisfy for the beneficiaries of a private trust. And in dissent, Justice Gorsuch, no surprise, joined by Sotomayor, Kagan, and Jackson, uh, said that in their view, the tribe wasn't actually claiming that the government had an affirmative duty to provide it with water, but rather had a duty to identify the water rights that it holds for them. You know, GC, Justice Gorsuch's opinions in these Indian law cases this week and last week have been fascinating to me for a number of reasons. First of all, he seems determined to rule in favor of tribes, uh, if he can uh, at all possible do so. And what was particularly interesting to me about this opinion uh, he wrote in this Navajo Nation case was that it seemed to stand in contrast to his hypertextualist opinions that he wrote last week in the Luc de Flambeau case uh, and the opinion he wrote in the Brackeen case. Uh, this one seemed to move away from a strict construction of the text of the treaty and to try to bring in more background principles. Uh, he talked a lot about the Indian canon of interpretation, uh, yep. where you know you're supposed to read treaties favorably to tribes and that sort of thing. Uh, and just it's very interesting because this opinion, in contrast to those other ones, uh, doesn't seem to quite toe the strict textualist line uh, that he's been trumpeting for so long. Right. It reminded me during his confirmation hearings. You probably remember he. Uh, recited with favor that line from Justice Scalia, which is that, uh, you know, if you're an originalist and you like all the outcomes that your methodology gives you, you're doing it wrong. Uh, but here, Justice Gorsuch, that, uh, that endorsement of Justice Scalia's line seems to be coming back to bite him a little bit because he does not seem to be very consistent when his preference for tribes comes up against his textualist method. That's right. And of course, there was the uh, the very controversial, in my view, very uh, bad opinion that he wrote in the Bostock case as well. Uh, but we'll have to leave that discussion for another day. Uh, GC, why don't you tell us what happened in Jones versus Hendrick? Sure. Very quickly, this case held that a convicted criminal cannot use a petition for writ of habeas corpus to collaterally attack his sentence if he has already collaterally attacked his sentence with a particular motion called a Section 2255 motion. In short, what the defendant here did was try to do an end run around a law that prohibits prisoners from filing a whole bunch of Section 2255 motions by filing a whole bunch of habeas petitions. And the court said, no, you, you can't do that. 
Next up, we have Yegizarin versus Smagin. This was another 6-3 decision, this time written by Justice Sonia Sotomayor, in which the Chief Justice and Justices Kagan, Kavanaugh, Barrett, and Jackson joined her, holding that for purposes of a racketeering claim, the injury is, quote, domestic if the circumstances surrounding it suggest that it arose within the United States. In this case, Russian fraudsters defrauded Smagin of his shares in a Moscow real estate venture. The fraudsters fled to California, where they lived a luxurious life in a Beverly Hills mansion. Uh, Sounds like the basis for a great (laughs) TV show, uh, maybe. But Smagin found them, and he launched an arbitration proceeding against them in London, where he was ultimately awarded a judgment of $92 million. Smagin then filed an action in California federal court to enforce that judgment. He got a judgment there, but then the fraudsters engaged in a wild and complicated conspiracy, including fake judgments from other courts, to make it look like they had no money for him to take. So the question was, was this harm suffered in the United States or in London, where the arbitration award was given. Here, the Supreme Court said that the question is context-specific, and in this case, there was enough conduct in the U.S. so that the injury was, in fact, domestic. Justice Alito, joined by Justice Thomas in full and by Justice Gorsuch in part, dissented, arguing that this, quote, context-specific approach offers no guidance to the lower courts. He would have dismissed the petition as improvidently granted. Next up is Samia versus the United States, a 6-3 to three decision by Justice Thomas, joined by Roberts, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, where the court held that there is no confrontation clause issue, that's the clause that says you have a right to confront witnesses against you, when the government introduces the confession of a co-defendant that does not implicate you. So here are the facts. Samia and two others were charged in a murder-for-hire scheme, and all three were tried together. Prior to trial, one of the co-defendants confessed that he was with the crew, but that it was Samia who pulled the trigger. But here's the problem. The government naturally wanted to introduce this confession, but the confessor was not going to take the stand. That meant that the government couldn't use the confession against Samia because Samia wouldn't be able to cross-examine his co-defendant. So the government introduced the confession only against the confessor and replaced Samia pulled the trigger with another person pulled the trigger. Now the question is, did this violate Samia's confrontation clause right? Samia said yes, because the jury could infer that this confession implicated him. But the Supreme Court said no, because by removing Samia's name from the confession and introducing it only against the confessor, the statement was not a a witness statement against Samia. So there was no confrontation clause problem. And the underlying facts of this case are actually pretty wild. There have actually been several documentaries and television specials about the underlying facts of this case, and I'd encourage everyone to go take a look at those uh, because it definitely makes for interesting, if not disturbing, television. Next up, we have the case of Coinbase versus Belsky. Now, this might sound like an exciting cryptocurrency case, and I suppose to some it might (laughs) be, uh, but sorry to say, it's not really about cryptocurrency per se. It's about procedures and mandatory arbitration. This was a five to four decision by Justice Kavanaugh, where he was joined by the Chief Justice, as well as Justices Alito, Gorsuch, and Barrett, where the court held that a district court must stay its procedure 
proceedings pending an interlocutory appeal on the question of whether a case must go to arbitration. Justice Jackson, joined by Justices Kagan and Sotomayor in full, and by Justice Thomas in part, dissented, saying that district courts should have some discretion to decide whether to stay a case. And last up for this week, the United States versus Hansen, a 7-2 decision by Justice Barrett, joined by everyone but Jackson and Sotomayor, where the court held that you can be convicted of encouraging or inducing someone to enter the country illegally by lying to them, claiming that you're going to adult adopt them. That is the very sad situation that happened here. Hansen ran a scam promising more than 450 people that they could inherit U.S. citizenship through his adult adoption scam. They paid him money. They came to the country. They got nothing. So Hansen said that his scam was protected free speech, uh, or at least that the statute which prohibits encouraging or inducing was constitutionally overbroad. The court said no. The statute prohibiting encouraging or inducing is not overbroad. It goes no further than the purposeful solicitation and facilitation of specific acts known to violate federal law. And that prohibition is perfectly permissible. Justice Thomas concurred to note that the Supreme Court's overbreath doctrine is itself way too broad, allowing the courts to overstep their limited constitutional role. And Justice Jackson, joined by Justice Sotomayor, dissented, saying that in her view, it is not possible to read uh, the statute uh, in the narrow way that the majority did. She would have struck it down and set Hansen free. Now, that is the end of the opinions this week. Boy, next week is going to be a doozy. But uh, we have an interview uh, with Judge Amul Thapar right after this. Five days a week, two episode formats, one mission to deliver the news you care about and analysis on the biggest issues facing America. The Daily Signal podcast brings you two episodes every day in the same podcast feed. Each morning, catch interviews with policymakers, leading experts and conservative activists as we discuss some of the greatest challenges facing our country and offer solutions for a brighter future. And every weekday at 5 p.m., we bring you the top news of the day. These are the headlines you care about. Subscribe to the Daily Signal podcast wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss out on our morning interviews or evening news. Well, today we're joined by a returning guest, Sixth Circuit Judge Amul Thapar, who is here to tell us about his new book, The People's Justice, Clarence Thomas and the Constitutional Stories That Define Him. Judge, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be back. So, Judge, can you give us an overview of the book? Sure. So I was originally going to write a book about originalism for both lawyers and lay people. And as I dove in, I figured out that the best way to do it was to talk about the cases. Mm -hmm. And so what I do in the book is I, the introduction and conclusion are my own, and they lay my cards on the table. I'm an originalist. I believe originalism is the proper way to interpret the Constitution. I believe words have significance. I lay that all on the table. I also lay out the criticisms of Justice Thomas. Mm -hmm. And then I let the cases speak for themselves. And I know we're going to get into them a little bit, so I'll save that. But I really tried to document everything that happened in the cases that no one told you about mm -hmm. through interviews, through exhaustive review of the record and everything else. And everything's endnoted and cited so people can check my work just like all originalists <laughs> like to have our work checked. 
And I think what people will find in the book may surprise them. Even your listeners will find some very surprising things in the book. So of all the justices you could have written about and whose jurisprudence you could have explored, why Justice Thomas? Yeah. So when we lost Justice Scalia, we lost much more than a great originalist. We lost our evangelist for originalism. Justice Scalia was someone that said when I came, when he initially came in the room and said he was an originalist, people would go running from it like he was a bear. <laughs> Today, thanks to Justice Scalia and others, Ed Meese and Robert Bork and others, originalism is a household name, so much so that it's really originalism and its critics and no countervailing mm -hmm. philosophy of interpretation. The ultimate originalist today is Justice Thomas. Mm -hmm. And so all the arrows seem directed at him in so many ways that I thought, let's write something that if the critics give an honest read, maybe they'll reassess. Mm. Can you, just in case our listeners don't know, can you give us your um, definition of originalism? I sure can. So I think of originalism as original public meaning. And I'll just talk about that in generalities for a second, how I try to explain it to lay people. And the best way is to, because I love stories, as you know, from mm -hmm. looking at the book, is to tell a story. And so when I was nominated to the Sixth Circuit, so I'd been a district judge, and I was nominated to the Sixth Circuit, and people reported that I was an originalist. And my neighbor, who is a dear friend and thinks differently than me, came down and said, oh, my God, I can't believe you're one of those. <laughs> you're an originalist? And I said, yeah, Mike, I'm an originalist. And he said, how can you be an originalist? And I said, Mike, you're a businessman. Let me talk to you for a second about that. You sign contracts. You and the person on the other side reach a meeting of the minds, and you reflect that in the words of the document. If you get in a dispute, is it my job to try and interpret the words in the document to be consistent with the meeting of your minds? Or is it my job to tell you what's best for you and say it's hiding in the shadows of the document and this is what you all really meant? And of course he said, no, 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 you should interpret the document. Right. I said, that's all an originalist is. All we're doing, think about the Constitution. As Randy Barnett says, the Constitution binds those who govern us, meaning the legislators, the president, the any government official, frankly, and the military. And so those words were what the American people blessed the government with doing and not doing. And it's our job to interpret what the, the, the American people have certain God-given rights. And they allow some imposition on those rights to have a limited federal government. And the Constitution reflects that. And the words in those documents, as they were understood at the time, is what originalism is all about. What's surprising about it and the book proves is how it plays out much different than the critics say. Mm -hmm. So before we get into that, I, you mentioned your love of stories. And sure enough, you start this book out with a story uh, about Justice Thomas. Can you tell us that story and um, explain why you chose it to start the book? Yeah. So Justice Thomas, as he often does, went to Mass. And he comes out of daily Mass with a few of his clerks, including my friend Nicole Garnett. And Nicole relayed the story to me. He comes out and he's walking down the steps. And a homeless person comes running up and he says, Justice, Justice, I've got another petition for you. 
and the clerks brace. And they think, should I grab the justice? What should I do? He waves them off and walks over to the man. And he wants, when he comes back, he says, these are tough days for him. And they all look at him puzzling, with a puzzle in their face. And he explains to them that years ago, he had become addicted to drugs and had a falling out with his mom. And Justice Thomas had counseled him to get clean. And as a result of getting clean, he reconciled with his mom. But sadly, his mom had just recently passed away. And the justice was counseling him once again. In fact, at the end of that introduction, as you know, I talk about how Justice Sotomayor points out that Justice Thomas cares passionately about people, Mm -hmm. so much so that he knows every person's name in the building. And I quote her directly. Mm -hmm. Why do you pick that story to, to introduce your exploration of his jurisprudence? Because I think people will take issue with the title, Mm -hmm. The People's Justice. And the reason he's the people's justice is not only because he's such a wonderful people person. That, of course, goes without saying for anyone that knows him. But let's set that aside. His jurisprudence reflects not only the will of the people through originalism, Mm -hmm. but it shows a real understanding of the real people in front of him. As you go up the court system, and I've been uh, at multiple levels, I was a trial attorney for a long time, then I was a district judge, and now I'm a circuit judge. You get further and further away from the real people in front of them. In other words, in the district court, you see them, you look at them, they're in court with you. Mm -hmm. At the circuit court, you don't see them. You don't hear from them. You're just looking at legal principles. And it's important. And one thing I learned from doing this book is how important it is never, ever to forget that in every case, it's not only the legal principles that are important, but the real people in Mm -hmm. front of us. So you picked uh, 12 cases uh, to organize the book around. Um, Why did you pick these particular 12? You know, as I say in the beginning, often the critics of originalism will cherry pick some cases and then say this proves the point. Mm -hmm. And what I thought is I'd give the American people a cross-section of cases of varying types, all interesting stories. that were where Justice Thomas wrote separately. And let me explain for a second why that's important. To get a true understanding of originalism and Justice Thomas's originalism, the best place to look is separate writings. Because when we Mm -hmm. as judges have colleagues that join us, we always have to make accommodations. Mm -hmm. It doesn't reflect necessarily 100% what we think, Mm -hmm. right? It's a collective enterprise. And that's a good thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but I'm saying if you want to find what a judge truly thinks, look at his or her separate writings. Mm. So you start the book with Kelo versus City of New London. In this case, the court held that uh, a local government can use eminent domain to take property from one private party and give it to another. Um, What is that? What does Kelo tell us about Justice Thomas? Yeah, So Kelo is really interesting because as you pointed out – and the book recounts in dramatic detail, I would say. I like to say at least (laughs) and I'll let the reader be the judge. But I think it's pretty captivating and walks through Suzette Kelo's struggle to keep her home against a partnership between the Pfizer Corporation and the city of New London and the state of Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And so just to give two minutes of background if I may – 
the, and most of your, your listeners probably know this, but I'd like to tell them anyway because I think it sets it up. Suzette Kilo bought this house and put blood, sweat, and tears in refurbishing it to make it her own. Mm-hmm. And anyone that works on their house knows there's a certain pride and joy in that. And she had just made it perfect, so much so that she painted it Odessa pink, which <laughs> she viewed as an important color. And it's beautiful. I actually was struck when I saw pictures of it, uh, how beautiful it was. Well, at the time she was refurbishing it and making it her own, the Pfizer Corporation was partnering with New London and the state of Connecticut to take away her neighborhood. Why? Pfizer Pfizer was going to build a plant and offices in New London on property that was already there and available to them for their wonder drug or what they believed was their wonder Mm -hmm. drug, Viagra. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Pfizer wanted to, in order to do that, they wanted to partner with New London and take away this neighborhood through eminent domain and put an upscale mall there with shopping and restaurants and then an upscale apartment building Mm -hmm. with views like Suzette's. Mm -hmm. But this was a beautiful blue-collar neighborhood, a neighborhood people had lived for hundreds of years and loved. Their families had been there, and they were going to take it away. And they got the Institute for Justice from Washington, Mm -hmm. D.C., and the Institute is a public law firm. In other words, they take, I mean, they get thousands of requests and they take cases. It's really hard for them, but Scott Bullock took this case on. And in fact, Scott made his name in eminent mm-hmm. domain cases. And you got to get the book to get the, <laughs> and read the book to get the background of that, because I think it's a fun story. But what happens is this case, they fight. And this case makes it all the way to the Supreme Court. And historically, Justice Thomas points out as an original matter under the Fifth Amendment, you could take, the government could take through eminent domain property for the government's public use, for Mm -hmm. public use is what the words of the Fifth Amendment say. Right. And that meant things like they'd take some of your property for a sidewalk or they'd take a little, anyone that's lived in a neighborhood knows sometimes the government comes through and wants to widen the road or do something like that. And they would take a little bit of the property to accomplish that for the benefit of the public. What they weren't supposed to do is take it for a private purpose. And here, the argument Scott was making is the Pfizer Corporation was taking it for a private purpose. Now, why was this case important? That's a long-winded answer (laughs) I just gave you, but let me tell you why this case is important and why it's the lead-off case. Mm -hmm. Because there's so many critics, and I document this and cite to it if people don't believe it, although I'm sure all your listeners will know that Justice Thomas has been called a traitor to his race Mm -hmm. and an Uncle Tom. And Suzette Kilo loses the case at the Supreme Court five to four. And when she loses the case, Justice Thomas joins the principal dissent by Justice O'Connor, joined by Chief Justice Rehnquist and Justice Scalia. But then he writes for himself. And when he writes for himself, he takes up the invitation of one amicus, the NAACP, Mm. to return to the original meaning. And why? Because in most eminent domain cases, the NAACP made the case with statistics that the government preys on poor and minorities. Mm -hmm. And to prove the point, the case that allowed for public purpose, meaning purposivism in taking away property, 
purposivism is probably a bad word because we use that in in the textualism <laughs> context, but for a public purpose, taking away this property for private use is a case called Berman, and it came out of D.C. And as Justice Thomas pointed out, 97% of the people displaced as a result of that eminent domain project were black. Mm. So that brings up an interesting point. We've got two cases in your list, Grutter uh, versus Bollinger, Virginia versus Black, that involved explicit race issues. Uh, but in addition to Kelo, you have Zellman versus Simmons-Harris and McDonald versus Chicago. These are not cases that involve race issues, um, obviously. But Thomas, in his separate writings, pulls out important racial considerations that other justices missed. Can you talk about those cases a little bit? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And um... – I want to point out one thing that you just flagged is for your listeners, do me a favor and go Google Justice Thomas in those cases and see how many times it's reported that he has a strong black voice. Obviously, <laughs> it's beyond dispute he has a strong originalist voice mm -hmm. and originalism comes first and foremost for him. He will not compromise his principles for anything. He sticks to the original meaning, as I say in the beginning, no matter what. And everyone knows that. And I don't think anyone would dispute that at this point. But because, and let me say this, because he trusts the American people. Mm -hmm. So the thing is, is he trusts the American people because he knows the goodness of the American people. But he also knows our history. And he never is afraid to talk about our history. And so the two cases you asked about, McDonald, if I can start mm -hmm. there, McDonald versus City of Chicago, is a case about Otis McDonald, the grandson of slaves himself, who relocated to Chicago for a better life. And the chapter walks you through his gripping and American dream story, where he rises from nothing, is in the military, and then becomes a janitor when he gets out, but goes to college on the GI Bill, hmm. becomes the head of his union, makes a better life. He just wants to give a better life to his wife and kids and moves them to Morgan Park, an, a middle-class community on the south side of Chicago. Well, when he moves there, the gangs start coming in, hmm. and so do the drug dealers. And he has six separate incidents of criminal behavior against him and his family. And I document that in the book. And he tries all sorts of measures. He puts bars on the windows. He puts in an alarm system. He, um, he, puts, he joins a community policing group and becomes the head of the group. He does everything in his power. The final straw was when a person was in their garage hiding under their car and they were asleep. And luckily, an eagle-eyed neighbor reported it. Mm. That was it. Otis had had enough. Otis wanted a gun at his side to protect himself. A vet, someone who hunted as a hobby, knew how to handle guns, was willing to do anything to have a gun at his side because if you have to call the police and someone's in your house maybe too late mm -hmm. in his mind for his wife and his kids and him. And so Otis asked the city of Chicago, and they said no. He sought a permit. They said no. He was very frustrated. 
And he talked to the Second Amendment Foundation, and they recommended a lawyer by the name of Alan Gura. And Alan had filed a case called Heller Mm -hmm. in Washington, D.C., and he was awaiting Heller being filed. And I want to now cut to the chase. So eventually Heller gets filed. They file the case, and the drama around that is also in the book. It makes its way to the Supreme Court. He loses in the lower courts, and it makes its way to the Supreme Court. And here's Otis for the first time coming into the Supreme Court, sitting in the Supreme Court and watching the oral argument. And he comes back for the opinion. And when he gets the opinion, he reads it multiple times, but he focuses on one opinion in particular, and that's Justice Thomas's. Why Justice Thomas's? Because only Justice Thomas remembered that there's a privilege, or not, I shouldn't say remembered, but only Justice Thomas talked about the Privileges or Immunities Clause. Mm -hmm. And how, in Justice Thomas's mind, there was no such thing as substantive due process. But the way the founders of the 14th Amendment envisioned the privileges or immunities of citizenship coming into the 14th Amendment was through the Privileges or Immunities Clause. And one of those privileges or immunities was gun ownership. And it's interesting. Justice Thomas recounted the history leading up to the ratification of the 14th Amendment were in the South. They did not allow blacks, they passed what were called black codes Mm -hmm. to stop blacks from possessing guns. And Frederick Douglass said, without guns, we will never be equal. And Justice Thomas recounts all of that in the lead up because he needs to to explain in his mind the Privileges or Immunities Clause Mm -hmm. in the 14th Amendment and why it incorporates the Second Amendment. So Justice Thomas when he was younger, was once a black radical. Uh, then he becomes a conservative. Some of his critics, like you said earlier, uh, say that he sold out. He's an Uncle Tom. Uh, on the other hand, some people have argued that uh, this change from black radical to black conservative is actually entirely consistent. Uh, what do you think? It's a great question. I think, <laughs> I think that he is a student of Frederick Douglass, as you'll see in this book, as he repeatedly quotes Frederick Douglass. And he's a student of Thomas Sowell. Mm -hmm. And I think that results in a black nationalism that he has. He believes that if you raise the bar for blacks, they will always meet it. Sadly, he thinks if you lower the bar, like all kids, for example, if anyone who has kids who's listening to this knows If you set a low bar, they go to the low bar. If you set a high bar, they go to the high bar. That's human nature. That's why good parents set high bars for their children. And Justice Thomas knows that blacks can do anything. In fact, in one of the chapters I recount, and I won't give it all away, but he talks (laughs) about historically black colleges. And he says, and I, I quoted it, he says, it never ceases to amaze me that the courts assume that anything that is predominantly black is inferior. Mm -hmm. And this black nationalism runs throughout his jurisprudence. But remember, and the one thing you'll notice in every one of his cases is he's an originalist first. Mm -hmm. So why talk about the black nationalism as well? And why include it in the book? Because I think it undeniably, his own words undeniably refute his critics. In fact, what I ask your listeners to do is after they're done reading the book, either recommend it or if they're willing, give it to a friend who's a critic, who's skeptical of Justice Thomas. Ask them, do me a favor and read this book and then let's talk. Mm. 
Read it yourself first to arm yourself with the information. No matter what you know about these cases, trust me, I should know a lot about them. I learned a ton. (laughs) And I think you will too because so little is reported even in the reporters themselves. So you had mentioned that uh, there's a connection between Justice Thomas's originalism and his love of people, uh, specifically his love of the American people. Can you explore that for me a little bit? What do you mean? Yeah. So in the introduction, I talk a little bit about some some information I got from his great book, My Grandfather's Son. Mm -hmm. When he was a child, his mom was making... $10 every week. She couldn't afford to raise him and his brother. So she gave them to her dad, their grandfather. And their grandfather raised them. And there's two key things that I took away from that. First is whenever he or his brother complained that they couldn't do something, their grandfather said, old man can't is dead. You know how I know? I helped bury him. So don't complain. Put your mind to it. You can accomplish anything. What a great message. Mm -hmm. His second thing he knew is to quote Frederick Douglass, education means emancipation. The way to a better life in this country in his grandfather's mind was through education. And Justice Thomas talks often about the formative years of his life where his grandfather, who had no money, saved up enough send him and his brother to Catholic schools. And at those Catholic schools, he learned from nuns. And he talks about the ruler they used. And he talks about how they helped form a young Clarence Thomas. And how can he not, himself the descendant of slaves, be, think the American people are great. Think about this country. I'm the child of immigrants My dad came to this country with a one-way ticket and $5 because he was poorer than anyone knows. A one-way ticket and $5, and his mom said, good luck. Hmm. And here I am sitting with you, having been confirmed three times, U.S. attorney, district judge, and circuit judge, having met with multiple presidents. Same for Justice Thomas. He rose from nothing to sit on the highest court of the land. And be wanting one of, if not, I would make the case, the leading originalist voice in America. Mm -hmm. I mean, only in the United (laughs) States of America can this happen. So of all his opinions, uh, you've probably at this point, what, read everything he's ever written. Uh, Do you have a favorite opinion? You know, I don't want to. It's in the book. I'm not going to give it away. Fair enough. Because Fair I don't enough. want all the readers to get the book and skip to that chapter <laughs> right. to find out why I like one opinion so much. I think it's going to be hard to discern when you read it. I think he's got so many masterful mm. opinions. And I think, I wish, and I pray, that his critics would give it a read. Mm. Because I think even they'll be surprised. So it's it, it's one thing, I suppose, to have written a book like this, having read everything he's ever written. But I imagine you've also met the man. Uh, is that am I right about that? And if so, how did your personal interactions with him shape the book, if at all? Yeah. So I did meet him. I have met him several times. Um, I did not interact with him at all. Talk to him about this book. I haven't talked to him about this book to this day, <laughs> and it's out now. I don't know if he's seen it or read it, 
because I wanted to do an independent dive. And I didn't, he wouldn't influence me, but I didn't want to feel like I was influenced. So one of the first times I met Justice Thomas, we were at, believe it or not, Yale. Yes, Yale Law School. <laughs> yes, you're not hearing that wrong, <laughs> listeners. It is the Yale Law School was honoring him at his 25th anniversary. And it was an amazing ceremony. And afterwards, they had a reception, and then they had a private dinner. And at the reception were all these law professors who are his critics, who were mm-hmm. dying for just a minute with Clarence Thomas, a picture with Clarence Thomas. <laughs> these law students, also many of whom are his critics, who were there as well. But who else was there? The support staff. Mm. And he spent most of his time with the support staff. And when everyone left and we had to escort him to dinner, we were 30 minutes late. Why? He stayed and talked to and took pictures with every one of the support staff. Mm -hmm. And what I noticed is when he talks to someone, they're the only person that matters Mm -hmm. to him. He's not looking over anyone's shoulder. He's not seeing who's there. And... That had a lasting influence on me. And then as I talked to others, I gave a talk the other day and a woman came up to me and she said, oh, my friend was sick and Justice Thomas barely knew her, but he found out what hospital she was in and he sent her flowers. Hmm. I mean, he is the people's justice. Hmm. And if people gave him a fair shake, they would see his jurisprudence is so much different than the caricature. In fact, no one wants to give him an honest shake mm. because they'll be surprised. So what ultimately uh, do you hope uh, is sort of the, the overarching message you want to leave readers of the book with? I think there's – if I had to pick a few – can I pick a few oh, or do I means, have to no, pick no. one? <laughs> so the first and most important message is to take originalism to the American people. Mm. Justice Scalia took it to lawyers, took it to the academies, Mm. and I think the next step is to take it to the American people. There's a real void in talking about originalism without Justice Scalia, and no one can fill that mantle. But I think a group of us have to. Mm. His shoes are too big for any one person to fill. And I hope first and foremost I take originalism beyond its critics, beyond its lawyers, to the American people itself. In fact, I encourage your listeners to get this book in the hands of lay people and ordinary mm. people because it's as much as the lawyers will enjoy it, it's really written for them because I think that's the only way we're going to start to turn the tide mm. is if people truly understand originalism. The second is to say Justice Thomas is so much more than the caricature. Mm-hmm. And I think that is important because it's important for any young kid to hear his story, to know that you can rise up from nothing in this country and that, as Justice Thomas said, you don't have to have, and I quote this in the intro, you don't have to have your views assigned to you because of your race. Mm -hmm. You can think for yourself. That's something he learned from his grandfather and he learned from kindergarten up. And he always did, as you mm-hmm. point out. He was a black nationalist. He was a black radical. And he doesn't hide from that. And the final thing 
is to show the American people that originalism truly does protect their will. Mm. So final question for you, Judge. Last time you were on the show, we asked you, you know, our, our standard question, if you could talk to any Supreme Court justice, who would it be? Who would, what, what would you talk about? You said John Marshall Harlan because he represented duty to law. Uh, has your answer changed? And if it has not changed, who is the second justice you'd love to talk to? So I'd still love to talk to John Marshall Harlan because he's Kentuckian, great dissenter, had some interesting cases, both good and bad. Mm-hmm. But it's, of course, Justice Scalia. <laughs> I'd love to spend time with him and ask him, what can we do better? Mm. You left us too soon. I know he's looking down. But what, as judges, can we do better to continue your legacy? Mm. I think this is a start, but it's a small one. And I think we have an obligation when originalism and what is becoming, hopefully, for the American people's sake, an originalist court, meaning the court at large, we have an obligation to push back. Mm. And with Justice Scalia, he was never afraid to do so. And yet, for all of us, filling those shoes is awful <laughs> tough. And I'd just like to know, I'd like to sit down and have one more meal, mm. one more chance for him to give me the blueprint. <laughs> Well, Judge, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much. Uh, And our listeners can find a link to your book in the show notes. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. And remember, the book is called The People's Justice. Hopefully people won't forget that now. (laughs) But it is Clarence Thomas and the constitutional stories that define him. You can find it anywhere. And I really appreciate if you read it and pass it on to someone that thinks differently. Thanks, Judge. Thank you. All right, GC, are you ready for this week's trivia? I certainly am. Excellent. Well, this is your next to last week, uh, so enjoy it while you can uh, before we take our summer hiatus. And I thought we'd do something a little bit different for today's trivia. Uh, Today's trivia comes from Ed Whalen's Substack, Confirmation Tales, which reveals the inside scoop of many famous confirmation battles, and it's well worth the subscription. After all, Ed has unique knowledge from his time working in the Senate for Orrin Hatch, and he's been around Washington and the confirmation process for many, many years. So full credit for today's trivia goes to Ed. I saw it come out uh, last week, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to see if GC knows the answer to these questions. So, <laughs> well, uh, you're in luck that I did not read Ed's uh, post from the last couple of weeks. Well, so. do as we say, not as you did. Everyone should subscribe <laughs> to Confirmation Tales. It's a fascinating uh, read in a lot of ways. All right. So first up, GC, uh, who was the first lower court federal nominee to have a vote on a cloture motion on his or her nomination? I I do not know. Yeah, that was actually Stephen Breyer when Breyer was nominated for the First Circuit in 1980. And Ed's written extensively about the Breyer nomination to the First Circuit, kind of some of the backroom dealings that went on to secure that for him. And again, it's uh, it's well worth the read, and you can check out more at Ed's Substack, uh, uh, Confirmation Tales. All right, GC, next up. Before 2017, who was the most recent Supreme Court nominee to face a vote on a cloture motion on his or her nomination as part of an effort to filibuster that nomination? This would have to be Justice Alito, I think. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And in fact, you may remember, uh, then-Senator John Kerry had urged the filibuster of Justice Alito's nomination, and Justice Alito had been nominated to replace Justice Sandra Day O'Connor on the court. Uh, But fortunately, the filibuster effort failed, and the cloture motion passed uh, with 72 votes. And just to remind our audience members, a cloture motion is essentially a motion in the Senate to end debate uh, on a certain topic and essentially keep the ball uh, moving forward on certain respects. And so that's what happened with Justice Alito's uh, nomination to the U.S. Supreme Court. All right, GC, next up, before 2017, who was the most recent Supreme Court nominee to have a cloture motion on his or her nomination fail? Um, I don't know this one either. Well, Ed tells us it's actually uh, Justice William Rehnquist when he was nominated to be an associate justice in December of 1971. Now, even though the cloture motion on Justice Rehnquist's nomination failed under the rules that were existing in the Senate at the time, uh, those opposed to Justice Rehnquist's nomination actually agreed to let a final confirmation vote take place later that same day. And Justice Rehnquist was, of course, ultimately confirmed uh, to his seat on the U.S. Supreme Supreme Court. Interesting. All right, GC, who was the most recent Supreme Court justice to take his or her seat by a recess appointment? Well, I don't know if it's the most recent, but this does not happen very often, and I know that it happened to Potter Stewart. So let me let me guess Potter Stewart. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you may remember uh, President Eisenhower, who appointed Justice Stewart, uh, was a fan of the recess appointment. And in fact, uh, he had appointed uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren as a recess appointment, and he also appointed Justice William Brennan, uh, which, of course, uh, he later called one of his greatest mistakes as president, <laughs> uh, to, uh, to be a justice uh, through a recess appointment as well. All right, final question for today, and we'll stick with the theme of recess appointments. Who was the most recent lower court federal judge to take his or her seat by recess appointment? Well, this would be none other than the living legend himself, Bill Pryor. (laughs) That is exactly right. Uh, He was President George W. Bush appointed him to the 11th Circuit uh, via recess appointment in February of 2004. And that was in large part, you may recall, because Senate Democrats at the time were aggressively uh, filibustering uh, Judge Pryor in an effort to keep him out in, in, sorry, in an effort to keep him off of Uh, the bench. So I'm very glad that uh, President Bush appointed Judge Pryor to the bench and that he was ultimately confirmed uh, to his full lifetime appointment. Well, GC, well done uh, for today. Thanks very much. Not not too bad. Not too bad. Not too bad at all. And again, what, three or five? Yeah, that's not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, And I would remind uh, you and everyone else, subscribe to Ed's uh, Substack, Confirmation Tales, where he sends uh, out, regularly sends out uh, fascinating information uh, like this uh, to his subscribers. Well, that's it for today. Thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows.
You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.